newborn screening research, I see the benefits. I mean, I was here 20 years ago in this field and I saw children three years old having strokes and unable to walk. And I saw, you know, parents hope die. You know, I, I just saw the impact that it had on families. It, it's just, it's devastating. And so I have seen the impact of newborn screening and what it does. Now we have 95% of children with sickle cell disease live to 18 years old. Whereas before that one to three year old was, you saw an increase in mortality and morbidity. And so I've seen the benefits of newborn screening. So it's, it, it means life and hope to me for children with sickle cell disease. Every state screens for sickle cell disease and researchers are working with industry and advocates to develop new ways to improve the health outcomes of individuals living with sickle cell disease. Today on the Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast, we welcome Yvonne Carl, who is trained as a researcher, a lawyer, a nurse, and a patient advocate, and is currently the Director of Patient Services in the Department of Hematology at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She has over two decades of dedicated commitment to advancing the management of care, advocacy work for equitable resources, and community engagement to amplify the voices of patients and families with sickle cell disease. She sits on several editorial and national boards, including the National Black Nurse Association, the Sickle Cell Subcommittee, the International Association of Sickle Cell Nurses and Professional Associates, and the Sickle Cell Community Consortium Executive Board. Yvonne has been appointed and reappointed as a member of the Tennessee Governor Genetic Advisory Committee for more than 15 years, and she's been involved in community-based participatory research since the beginning of her career. And in the year 2021, Yvonne was recognized by the American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charity, which is the largest healthcare related charity in the United States, with the St. Jude Legacy Award for her lifetime work with the sickle cell community. Yvonne graduated with a Bachelor's of Nursing degree from the University of Tennessee and a law degree from the University of Cincinnati. She's a proud veteran of the U.S. Navy. Judge Advocate Generate Corpse, and as a wife, mother, and grandmother. Join us in listening to Yvonne share her passion and inspiring story of hope and her vision for newborn screening research and sickle cell disease. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. 
Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Hello, Yvonne. We're thrilled to have you on our Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast. You've worn many hats in your professional journey in caring for individuals with sickle cell disease. You're a researcher, a lawyer, a nurse, and a patient advocate. Your knowledge and expertise have had an immense impact on the care of individuals with sickle cell disease. In 2021, you were recognized by the American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities, or ALSAC, which is the largest healthcare-related charity in the United States, with the St. Jude Legacy Award for your lifetime work with the sickle cell community. That's amazing. Congratulations on this achievement and the enormous impact on the society. How did you get involved in newborn screening research? So I got involved, it was a little bit of a fluke. I worked in the uh, pediatric emergency room and in Memphis, Tennessee. And at that time, that was in the early nineties, there weren't a lot of treatment for sickle cell disease or a lot of different diseases. And so all the children, it was the only only pediatric hospital in the city and actually in the region. So it was extremely busy all the time. And Memphis is a 60% uh, African-American city. And so we had a lot of children with sickle cell disease and you saw a lot of complications with sickle cell disease. And so all of the children came to the emergency room and the doctors from St. Jude would come over to the hospital and they would uh, help treat the children if they were admitted to the hospital. So I became very good friends and uh, with the people from St. Jude in the hematology department. And in 1999, they had an opening and they asked me if I would come and work with them with the uh, hematology department. And my very first job was telling families that their child had sickle cell disease. In Tennessee, in the newborn screening, when children are, are born, they're tested. At that time, they were only tested for about four different diseases. Now they're tested for about 70. But they are tested, but they go home within 24 hours. And so they don't know the results of those tests. Those, uh, those blood spots are sent to the state, and then the state uh, does a screening on them, and then they send it to the parents, the doctor, and we were the 
sickle cell, state designated sickle cell center for Western Tennessee. And so we received all of the positive screens for uh, children with sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait. And my job was to cold call parents and tell them that their child had sickle cell disease. So you can imagine how that went over. And um, it was it was loss of that perfect child that they thought they were going to have. You think for nine months, you're looking forward to this. It was anger. It was guilt. It was devastation. Uh, I, I can't tell you that uh, the impact that it had from telling families that their child had sickle cell disease, especially calling from St. Jude, uh, because the first thing they thought about was cancer. So at that time, we, would, uh, we were able to make home visits and I would make home visits to all of our families so I could answer any of the questions they had, any of the questions that the other family members had, the aunts, the grandparents, the extended support system. So that was my um, intro into newborn screening. And since St. Jude is a research hospital, on day three, I was given a research study to uh, uh, for newborn screening for there was a collaborative effort between the state of Georgia and Tennessee. And uh, that was my intro into newborn screening. That's such a powerful story, Yvonne. It reminds me of, you know, there it's actually um, there are several leaders in newborn screening across the United States who have been driven by their work with sickle cell disease and delivering that newborn screening result has really spurred advancements in newborn screening. It's just um, pretty amazing to hear that story. And um, we can feel the emotion and what you experience with those individual families and how you um, now have spent your lifetime improving newborn screening and outcomes in individuals with sickle cell. Yes, I, I, uh, it, it made a profound impact upon me because when you have someone as a newborn and you watch them grow, it is, it, you can't help but establish a relationship with the patient and with their families. Uh, I still get pictures from children who are now in college, graduated from college, some who are older and, uh, I just got a picture the other day of uh, one of my youngest first uh, newborns who is graduating from college. But uh, not everybody, not everybody has that same outcome. And uh, sickle cell disease is a devastating disease. It is a disease of the red blood cells. And in order to have sickle cell disease, it's unlike any other disease that I know of, most diseases, both parents have to have the identical mutation or the identical change in the gene. But with sickle cell disease, one parent can have the sickle cell mutation and the other parent can have any other hemoglobin mutation. So like uh, the other parent can have C trait or D trait or beta thalassemia trait. So you can imagine that means they, there are so many different types of sickle cell disease, but all of them have that same sickle mutation. 
So what happens is that the red blood cells normally round and they can easily go through vessels and squeeze through. Uh, they're flexible. Well, with sickle cell disease, what happens is that they turn into stiff, rigid cells that look kind of like a quarter moon or a banana shape. They named it sickle because that was a, a old farming uh, tool, the sickle, and it looks like that, but most people don't know what a sickle is anymore. And so these cells are rigid and they're sticky, and so they clump together and they slow the delivery of oxygen to the cells. And so when you think of, just think if, if we didn't have oxygen in the room, we, we couldn't survive. Well, that's what's happened on a micro level within the cells. And so blood travels through all of our bodies, so it damages the entire body. So if it goes to the brain, what happens? You have a stroke. If it goes to the liver, you have liver damage. If it goes to the kidneys, you have kidney damage, the spleen. So it also is extremely painful. And when you when you speak to people, uh, I just spoke to, to one gentleman and I said, what does it feel like when you have, we call acute chest pneumonia in the lungs? And he said, it feels like it's a vice on my lungs, just squeezing and I can't breathe. And so this is, it's extremely painful. You think about pain uh, as a hallmark of sickle cell disease, but really it's the in organ damage that is the thing that, uh, that causes mortality in sickle cell disease. Yvonne, thank you for sharing with our listeners about the genetics of sickle cell disease and how you got involved in newborn screening research. It's so informative and for us to learn more about your work. You're currently the Director of Patient Services in the Department of Hematology at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Can you tell our listeners more about your role? Sure. So uh, I have a fun role. I, uh, I get to oversee the newborn screening program and help with uh, developing education for our hematology and also help with new projects that we have that we get all the time. We have collaborations with everyone all over the world. One of the things that I am very proud of is the newborn screening program we helped start in Kano, Nigeria, with the with the very generous donation of the Lynx Foundation, they helped get this started. And Phillips Award, we were able to partner with a hospital in Kano, Nigeria, which is in northern Nigeria. And just to give an an overview of of uh, sickle cell disease. We have about 100,000 children, well, 100,000 people with sickle cell disease in the United States. In Nigeria, they have the largest population of people with sickle cell disease. They have that many people born every year with sickle cell disease, but they don't have a standardized newborn screening program. And what we have found with newborn screening for sickle cell disease in the States is that it doubled the lifespan. So in before sickle cell disease, uh, before newborn screening, the 
average lifespan for a person with sickle cell disease was the mid-20s. Since the advent of newborn screening, the average lifespan has expanded to the mid-40s. Now, that's still 30 years less than most people without any type of uh, disease or disorder in the United States. So we still have a long, long way to go. But in sub-Saharan Africa, 50 to 90 percent of the children die with sickle cell disease before reaching five years of age. So while we have a long way to go in the United States, it is just beginning in sub-Saharan Africa. So starting and and working out the feasibility of newborn screening. And it's it's very different when you're thinking about different cultures, when you're thinking about different resources, they're lower resource countries. So one of our go-to treatments for sickle cell disease in the United States is transfusion because sickle cell disease is a disease of the blood. So if you give transfusions for certain complications, that helps the complications. For instance, if someone is having what we call a splenic sequestration, and what that means is in your spleen, it helps filter red blood cells. So the red blood cells go in and out of the spleen, and if they're old, the spleen gets rid of them. That's part of the spleen's job. Well, sickle cell disease, they have deformed red blood cells. So the spleen looks at those blood cells and say, hey, it's time to you know, break you down, get rid of you. And with normal, if you don't have sickle cell disease, your red blood cells last 90 to 120 days. So three to four months. With sickle cell disease, their red blood cells last 10 to 20 days. So their spleen is working, just working, working, working. And sometimes they the red blood cells block the spleen and they become enlarged. Well, in infants, this is an acute emergency that can cause mortality very quickly. And it's easily fixed if you catch it in time. You give a blood transfusion and get those new red blood cells because what happens, it's not that the blood is trapped in the spleen, it's that the blood is not getting around to the rest of the body. And so what does blood carry? Oxygen. So if oxygen is not getting around to the rest of the body, then the child will go into shock. So if you find it early, you can infuse, transfuse, and get oxygen to the rest of the body. Well, that's not a possibility in most uh, low-income countries. And so uh, newborn screening is extremely important because you have to find children early, you have to find other ways, such as give, putting them on hydroxyurea uh, to, to decrease morbidity and mortality in the population that has most of the people with sickle cell disease in the world. Thank you, Yvonne. And last year, um, you and your colleague, Dr. Sai at uh, St. Jude's presented during our um, research summit, and your talk can be found on our website at mvsdrn.org. And there you talked a little bit about your role in consenting individuals for gene therapy in newborn, in uh, sickle cell disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that role that you play at St. Jude's? 
Sure. So gene therapy is one of the new therapies for sickle cell disease. And it's still at the moment in clinical trials. Um, one is very close to getting approval, but at the moment they're still in clinical trials. And so one of the things that is extremely important is that people understand gene therapy for sickle cell disease. And as you can know, the as you know, most of those consent forms are about 20 pages long. They're all in legalese. And it's very difficult for someone who is a lay person to look at that and go through and understand. And also you think about the people who want to have gene therapy. Those are people who normally are, are just at the end of their role. They don't want to have sickle cell disease anymore. They don't want to deal with the complications. They, they, they are so hopeful that this is a cure and it is still in clinical trials. And so it is very important for people to understand that while we all hope that it will be successful and while we all hope that it will be a cure, we don't know. That's what a clinical trial means. It means we don't know. We're doing this to find out. And so when you're in a frame of mind that you've already decided this is going to be the cure for you, you might not understand and be able to give consent. And so it's really very tricky. And what we've done is uh, had a series of focus groups with people with sickle cell disease from all over the country, um, from Washington to, um, to the East Coast. And it was a series of over two years. And we just talked to people and we talked to people about the logistics of gene therapy. Uh, did you know that, that even if you have gene therapy, your germ, germinal uh, stem cells don't change. So you, even if it works and you're cured, you can still have a child with sickle cell disease or you have to live close to uh, to a gene therapy center because if something happens, you have to be able to get to the center in in a relatively short amount of time. You have to isolate for a period of time, and so that might not be possible for people if you have a lot of children. Uh, if you live far away from a center, it might not be possible to relocate. So uh, also there is a chance that you might not be able to have children afterwards. So you have uh, the ability to bank your eggs or sperm. So there are a lot of things that need to people need to understand before consenting to gene therapy, a gene therapy trial. So they can really make an informed, intelligent decision when they consent to have gene therapy. And it's also one of the things that we that has come out of that, we are doing a, a company booster shots is making decision trees. And they're basically cartoons, but it takes people down the different paths. And you also have to know the alternatives. Um, there may be other alternatives that are better or as good for you. So informed decisions takes a lot and it takes a lot of understanding and it takes a lot of time, which is not usually time that 
a doctor has to spend. So you have to bring in a whole team. It's a team approach. It's not just one person. And so that's what uh, Consent Reimagined was uh, for Gene Therapy Reimagined was all about. What a wonderful program. And, um, you know, gene therapy is just one of the advancements in your long history of research over two decades in sickle cell disease. What do you think we can look forward to over the next 10 to 20 years in innovations in the treatment of and care of individuals with sickle cell disease? And where do you think we're stalled or where we have to put more attention to? Um, can you tell our audience a little bit about your vision of where newborn screening research and research in general and newborn and sickle cell disease should go in the future? So what a loaded question. So I I am excited for the future. And what I tell people all the time with sickle cell disease is take care of yourself, take advantage of everything that's out there because what you want to buy yourself is time, time. Uh, 10 to 20 years from now, the landscape for sickle cell disease is going to be so different than it is right now. So so you wanna be there. You want to make sure you take care of yourself. So when the landscape changes again, you can take advantage of it. I see all kinds of things for, uh, for sickle cell disease. Right now, gene therapy is just in its infancy. It's a baby. So it's a, it's a therapy of privilege at the moment. And But I see in 10 to 20 years that it will no longer be a therapy of privilege. We will figure out in vivo gene therapy that we can give to low and middle income countries. We will work with other AI is booming. I mean, booming. We will work as we learn the pathways of the mechanisms that make things happen in sickle cell disease. We will be able to use artificial intelligence to go in. And I know there are medications out there already that can help people with sickle cell disease. We just don't know what they are. And so artificial intelligence can go through all those medications. Just as an example, hydroxyurea was a cancer medication. And someone said, hey, this doesn't work for cancer, but it'll work for sickle cell disease because what hydroxyurea does is increase the fetal hemoglobin. And just to give a quick explanation, fetal hemoglobin is the hemoglobin the babies have before they're born. Because if you think of the mother, um, the mother brings in oxygen. Well, that oxygen has to get to the baby somehow. So they have what better blood and it's called fetal hemoglobin and it has a higher affinity for oxygen. So it grabs that oxygen. And so everyone is born with fetal hemoglobin, but then it switches off because you no longer need that higher affinity for oxygen. And it switches off and becomes normal A hemoglobin or in the case of sickle cell disease, S hemoglobin. And so hydroxyurea turns that switch back on and it makes the body make more fetal hemoglobin. And But that was a fluke. Someone looked at it and said, hey, it increases the fetal hemoglobin. It will help with sickle cell disease. I know there are other drugs out there that can help with the pathways for sickle cell disease and artificial intelligence can go through them, unlike people who we have limits. And so I'm I'm so looking forward to that journey in the future. 
we have a program at St. Jude. It's called Script. And what it is, it was our patients basically drove this. Uh, they would come back to us as adults and they would say, oh, we had this complication or so-and-so had this complication or so-and-so had this happen. Because what newborn screening did was it allowed people to live longer. And so now we started having problems that we never had before because in the past, the average lifespan was in the mid twenties. So we had to look, it, does, it didn't just happen that someone uh, at 20 had a certain complication. That, com that complication had to start earlier, but it just uh, reached the, the boiling point, I'll say, at a certain age. And so SCRIP is a longevity study. And it starts with birth and it goes to end of life. And so at each stage, we are checking organs. We are checking mental status. We are uh, using DNA to find out what's going on and what's different and what we can change in childhood that can make a difference in adults. So I am super, super excited about the future. And I think the future is going to hold all types of things for people with sickle cell disease. Now, gaps. Gaps are, we all know the, the health inequities in, um, in sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease, while anyone can get sickle cell disease, and uh, you have many people, especially with sickle beta thalassemia, um, that can get sickle cell disease, it is mostly a disease of people of color. And so we know uh, in the past few years, it's kind of exploded with the Black Lives Matter movement. We know that there are systemic inequities that are, um, that are set up to decrease access to healthcare for people of color. And so that means that people with sickle cell disease, uh, because of the disease and the impact of the disease, and as you get older, it's a cumulative disease. So you have more and more organ damage as you get older. So that, that means that most of the people with sickle cell disease as an adult at some point will not be able to work. And according to the CDC, 70% of people with sickle cell disease are on Medicare and uh, are on Medicaid. And so that is a system designed for poverty, actually, because you can't make but a certain amount of money. Uh, if you do, then your benefits get cut, which means you don't have health insurance. Well, what do people with sickle cell disease need more than anything? Health insurance. Um, when they go to the emergency room, because it is a disease of pain, they need narcotics, they need opioids. So what's happening in our society today? We are saying, let's cut out opioids. Uh, so this is impacting people with sickle cell disease. A lot of people, uh, especially healthcare providers, think that they're drug seekers because they have a, a heavy, high tolerance for pain medication because they've been taking pain medication all their lives. So when they go in and ask for pain medication, it is in very high doses, doses that 
most people wouldn't be able to tolerate, but they need those doses because they've been taking it their entire lives. So, so much of the social determinants of health, that's just talking about the healthcare, not even talking about the, the environment that affects uh, health. We all know that stress affects health. We all, all know that living in certain neighborhoods that you don't have clean water, uh, look at the Flint uh, water crisis. Flint is not the only city that has contaminated water. We know this. Uh, we know that you have heavy industrial areas that affect health. So the disease itself is devastating. But then when you add in all the environmental factors that uh, those are those are gaps. Those are things we need to help and we need to clean up. And 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 I'm even I am I'm positive about that. And and because I think that now we're starting to look at social determinants of health and we're starting to ask, have you ever been homeless? Do you live in a an area where there are no grocery stores? Uh, so we're starting to recognize that these are things that we can change and we can work not just in silos, but we can work with other groups and other organizations who are already trying to combat these issues. And we can plug in with them and help people with sickle cell disease and other disorders uh, with the effects of the social determinants of health on their disease. Thank you so much for sharing your exciting views and, you know, just such a wealth of information. I think one thing, you know, we'd love to have you think a little bit about and share with our listeners what you think the ideal scenario would be for a newborn screen identified individual. So are we at the phase in research where we can begin to say, based on your particular change in the gene and your particular type of sickle cell disease, here's the treatment that's best for you, or here's the lifelong care plan. How far away are we from that, Yvonne? And, you know, we're reminded of a recent paper that looked at early intervention services across the states. And sometimes when a newborn is positive for a condition through newborn screening, they qualify for early intervention. And right now, based on this report um, from Dr. Elizabeth Reynolds and colleagues at RTI International, they found only five states qualify newborns with sickle cell immediately for early intervention services. So can you help us think a little bit about what the ideal scenario would be for families and newborns diagnosed with sickle cell through newborn screening? So I think in an ideal world, we would start with providing support immediately to the family. Um, I didn't talk at all about mental health and I didn't talk at all about the stress that it has on the family, on the parents. And I think that that's where we need to start. We need to help the parents understand, to know that they're not alone, that there are other people uh, that can help them. And then we need to provide services to the child, to the newborn. Uh, as you stated, the, the, the state of follow-up varies from state to state. We don't have a standardized method of follow-up for, for children with sickle cell disease. Uh, 
and and honestly for education of parents with sickle cell trait because if you have sickle cell trait you're a carrier and honestly we say a carrier is benign but any condition that can kill you i don't think it's benign and we have numerous instances from 50 years ago with the army had people dying in boot camp with sickle cell trait uh and they found that it was uh, rhabdomyolysis. That's exertional. Um, it, basically, you exercise really, really hard. And uh, sickle cell trait, people have sickle cells. And under extreme conditions, they can sickle. And um, that can kill you. And so people can die from uh, rhabdomyolysis. They can die from a very, very rare uh, type of renal cancer, renal medullary carcinoma, but they can also have other problems, um, eye issues, retinopathy, um, blood in the urine. So parents need to be educated. And also parents are at risk for having other children with sickle cell disease. So I think genetic counseling for the parents is extremely important. And most parents, I would say, are not getting genetic counseling. Um, they are not getting the information that they need for sickle cell disease. In a, a perfect world, we would have everyone receive genetic counseling. We would have the child immediately followed up with a sickle cell center or hematology center. We would provide social services for children and because they make a difference. If you teach a child alternative ways, because we know executive functioning early on is affected, and that affects you all throughout school, your executive functioning. So, if, But we can teach alternative ways. We can give extra support, uh, IEP 504 plans for children who are in school, so they get extra tutoring, so they get extra time. If we had camps that children can go through, one of the things that happens with sickle cell disease, you can't concentrate your urine. That means you wet the bed. Um, what 11-year-old wants to go to a camp and they're wetting the bed? But if you go to a camp where everybody's wetting the bed, you get up in the morning and you just change everybody's sheet, there's no stigma attached to that. If we could teach children and teachers in the school so children aren't bullied uh, because they're small, they, they're smaller than other children their age. And so in a perfect world, we would we would have all the support that was needed to raise a child with a chronic illness. Our most vulnerable, we would take care of them the way we should take care of them. Yvonne, thank you so much for sharing your vision for the next 10 or 20 years in sickle cell disease and research in diagnosis, screening, and treatment, and also your passion in social determinants of health. Um, I've been working in the field of public health for over uh, 15 years. And I totally agree with you that environment plays such an important role on our health. You're, you're also engaged in powering families in the decision-making process on the management of care for sickle cell disease. What advice do you have for researchers to engage families and advocacy organizations to amplify their voices? My advice would be to ask families. I mean, we, we make research projects and and without even consulting, if, if we were designing a car, 
what we would what we design a car and never consult the consumer about what they want with the car. An example, which I just thought was idiotic when I was younger, Ford had a car and they took it over to Japan and they drive on the other side of the, the road. Well, Ford didn't change the steering wheel. Surprise, surprise, the car didn't do well. Um, so we we do the same thing in research. We just develop a research project without even asking our consumers what they want, what they need. Um, one of the things that that for years and years, people with sickle cell disease would tell me is fatigue. Because you think about it, they don't they they have less blood, less oxygen, and so they're tired. They would tell me, I just wish I could do the things that everybody else does. Just one day. I wish I had the energy to do it. And so, so why aren't we researching more ways that we can help them have more energy? We have one drug. Uh, that Indari that people say helps them with their fatigue. Uh, so we, well, L-glutamine Indari is a country, uh, the company. So I think we really just need to get our consumer involved early, get their opinion. Uh, they can tell you immediately if a research project is uh, feasible or if it's not feasible if it's something that needs to be tweaked, if it's something that needs to be changed, they can tell you if it's um, something that is for the broader audience of people with sickle cell or a certain segment of the people with sickle cell disease. So I think we would just not waste as much time if in the beginning we involved people with sickle cell disease in the process. You were part of a group who published a study on strategies to increase access to basic sickle cell disease here in low and middle income countries. Can you share with our listeners how these helpful strategies are needed and used to access basic sickle cell disease care for patients in these countries? Absolutely. So. Life in low and middle income countries is extremely different than it is in the United States. I lived in the Bahamas for three years, not in uh, tourist island. I lived on Andros Island. And that was an island that did not have a hospital. They didn't have clinics. They didn't have uh, a doctor. They didn't have a nurse. Um, they didn't have anything that we would consider necessities in the state. Now, the only reason they weren't considered a, uh, a low-income country is because they were surrounded by the ocean and could go fishing. But they're, they're, they, didn't, they also didn't have constant electricity. And so with Penicillin, liquid penicillin in the early life, it has to be refrigerated. So if you don't have electricity that uh, you can count on not going out every other day, you can't have some medicine that needs to be refrigerated. So you need to think of other ways to do this, either taking a pill and uh, and uh, <clears throat> 
smashing the pill or taking uh, some, I talked to someone in Madagascar one time, they gave quarterly uh, injections for penicillin. So you have to think outside the box. Also, a lot of people have different cultures than we do in the United States. And we have to accept that. We have to accept that there, there are people who are Muslim, who are, are polygamous, who, who have totally different values than we might have. And we have to understand that. And we have to go to their religious leaders. They, if they're a very strict Muslim country, many people will not, uh, will not get care or take screening unless the emir says it's all right. So you have to go and talk to the religious leaders. So I think a lot of our, we have to look at a lot of our biases and understand that things are different. And where we might do things one-on-one because we have the uh, ability and capability to do that, we might have to do other things in groups in low resource and uh, low to middle income countries. So we just have to think differently and think outside the box. And um, one of the things that, that I'm super, super excited about is that took years of planning. Uh, St. Jude in conjunction with the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and an international organization of sickle cell nurses and professional associates uh, with funding from Global Blood Therapeutics, I have to say, we we developed a nursing boot camp. And so we brought nurses from all over the United States, from Trinidad and Tobago, Ghana, Sierra Leone, uh, Canada, and we taught them sickle cell disease. It was five days long, so it was intensive uh, study. But what what we have to understand is that most low resource or low to middle income countries, nurses are the ones who provide most of the care because they don't have enough doctors to, to provide care for sickle cell disease. Also, they're very trusted. And so we, it was a train the trainer. We taught them, gave them the resources, and then you go back and you train nurses in your area that can help take care of people with sickle cell disease. So I think we just have to think outside the box and, uh, and be willing to, to let go of some of our biases and to help people in other countries. Yvonne, it sounds to me that you have been involved in training the next generation of nurses through the sickle cell nursing boot camp. Could you maybe share more of the resources to this boot camp, like maybe the link, the application process? And are you also involved in training the next generation advocates and nurses? And what do you tell them about newborn screening research? I'm ecstatic because we just had it last week. So I'm still on a high from from having when you have first of all it's so rare well it's really non-existent that you have 40 nurses in a room who are all passionate about taking care of people with sickle cell disease and so the first thing we do right after we do introductions we have a panel of people with sickle cell disease of varying ages and they tell their experience about life living with sickle cell disease because we want everyone to understand the impact that sickle cell disease has. And it's so exciting because it, it, it teaches the 
the basics of sickle cell disease, which most nursing schools and even medical schools, they have very little about sickle cell disease. When you think of all the diseases and all the disorders that you have to teach and all the skills that you have to teach in school, you don't have time really to spend a lot on an individual disease. But if you're taking care of that person with the disease, you need to know the ins and outs of the disease, how it works, how it affects each individual organ. And, uh, and newborn screening is just the beginning of that. And we have, we were blessed to have uh, Dr. Tommy, Toby Amelson, who is the deputy commissioner of health for the state of Tennessee, who has a son with sickle cell disease. And she came and talked about getting that call from newborn screening and um, how it affected her and how it affected her life and, and her career. She changed careers so she could have more flexibility with for her son. So newborn screening is such an integral part of, of the process with teaching our nurses. And especially since most of the countries, most of the, uh, low to middle income countries don't have newborn screening, setting up newborn screenings. And I tell you, it was so excited. We even, uh, one of our, our nurses and uh, is starting a sickle cell clinic in Sierra Leone. And several of the nurses said that they come down and do mission work down there to help her with the uh, sickle cell clinic and start up a newborn screening program. And when I talk about newborn screening and thinking outside the box for low, uh, resource at low to middle income countries, one of the things, the type of, of testing that they do, we have laboratories that have clean space, that have people that are dedicated. Most uh, low to middle income countries don't have that. So we have new testing called point of care testing for sickle cell. And so a lot of that, and it's cheaper and it's easier and the results are instantaneous. So you don't have to send it anywhere and wait to get the results. The person who does the test can read the results and give the results to the parent or the person right then. So uh, it's I'm, I'm just excited about, uh, about the next generation and about the, the resources that are becoming available for people with sickle cell disease. And I think that, I think we're gonna win this battle with sickle cell disease and uh, newborn screening and follow-up. We are in this fight with you, Yvonne, and um, you've shared such a wealth of information with our listeners today. And last year, we were so excited. We invited you to join the steering committee for the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network. So we're in our 15th year of helping to advance newborn screening research. What role do you see MBSTRN playing in helping to advance your important work at St. Jude's and in the field of sickle cell disease? So I think one of the one of the things that is really exciting to me is with the newborn screening translational research network is that it is a network and it pairs parents with research with newborn screening programs and you're already thinking you you have to have a network uh, it's the you can't do this work in a silo on your own. You have to involve partners. And 
just your your mission to facilitate the research. But what I was talking about with the novel technologies, with data, data is so important because everything is driven by data. So I see the MBS TRN helping with data that can drive new technologies, your your ability to, to work with partners, with grants and funding is just, it's exciting. The tools that you have, and one of the first things that parents do that have children with sickle cell disease when they're formed, one of the first things they do is go on the internet nowadays. They go and look and try to find information. So I think that resources that you have for new parents is exciting. And I, I really think that you're going to help move the field forward as um, we get more and more people with expertise together and doing work and research together that, uh, that it's really going to help take that next step in uh, newborn screening for sickle cell disease. Yvonne, thank you so much for joining us today on our MBS Strand Newborn Screening Spotlight podcast. You, know, you share such a wealth of information and just hearing your voice and you can sense your passion in this area um, to care for families and patients with sickle cell disease. And as we close our podcast today, we have a signature question that we ask our guests. And that is, what does newborn screening research means to you? Newborn screening research, I see the benefits. I mean, I was here 20 years ago in this field and I saw children three years old having strokes and unable to walk. And I saw, you know, parents hope die. You know, I, I just saw the impact that it had on families. It, it's just, it's devastating. And so I have seen the impact of newborn screening and what it does. Now we have 95% of children with sickle cell disease live to 18 years old. Whereas before that one to three year old was, you saw an increase in mortality and morbidity. And so I've seen the benefits of newborn screening. So it's, it, it means life and hope to me for children with sickle cell disease. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.